You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Frederick Beekner. Hello and welcome to episode one of Sectarian Review. We thank you for downloading us. Uh, this is our first episode, as you know, our first actual full episode. And so uh, we're going to be working out a lot of the uh, processes that will be uh, hopefully become regular features of this episode in live real time mistakes included, so uh, we hope you enjoy what we have to do. My name is Danny Anderson. I'm an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Uh, I have just moved here, and I'm beginning this new job, and it's been really exciting, but very hectic, and uh, I'm trying to get ready for the new year, uh, the new school year, that is, and uh, in the meantime, uh, get this podcast up and running, and so this has been a, a very exciting time for me. I am joined today by Drew Bantland. Drew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Danny. That's great. Uh, Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am uh, just about to start a PhD at the University of Kentucky in philosophy. Um, I am kind of floating between philosophy and theology and um, social and political theory, but um, trying to get my both feet into the academic world although finding that somewhat difficult. But uh, that's kind of where I am. I just moved to Lexington with my wife and kids, and we're really enjoying ourselves here. But it has made it quite stressful, so I'm really glad that we've been able to find the time to um, join both of you in this new season of life. Thank you very much, Drew. And by both of us, he means Allison uh, Bacchus-Troy. Allison, how are you doing? And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Um, Drew and I actually are buddies from Trinity Christian College. We both graduated um, from there as philosophy majors. Um, I also have an MFA from Seattle Pacific University and have a background in teaching college writing. I've taught at Kuiper College in Grand Rapids, and I'm currently getting ready to teach at Suffolk University here in Boston. Uh, My family lives here while my husband is pursuing an MDiv degree from Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology. Um, I'm a writer and a teacher, and those are things that have kind of chased my life and also burdened my life, trying to figure out how to not just hold those two callings together, but how to actually live a full and unanxious life while doing both of those things. So I'm really excited to kind of tease through some of these questions with both of you guys. Yeah, that's a great... uh bio sketch you guys both gave us and what Allison just said about the work balance there that she's talking about is a really great introduction to today's topic which is vocation Uh, now Drew this is your sort of your topic Uh, do you want to set up the parameters of this discussion tell us what exactly we're going to be talking about sure yeah I'd love to sketch it out 
So uh, this is a topic that's really important to me on a number of levels. Um, I think we can all attest to its importance kind of personally, uh, experientially, but I'm increasingly uh, interested in it from a scholarly standpoint. So I'm hoping to do um, work in the phenomenology of work in my uh, social and political philosophy down the road. But uh, today I just want to take a crack at it from more of a conversational level with both of you. Um, and I'd like to set it up by talking not so much about adult life, but about kid life. So I've been watching my kids lately and thinking a lot about this notion of um, purpose and calling and work. And uh, my son in particular is just a workhorse. He just never stops moving. And it's made me think a lot about the, the types of human activities that we have and the purpose that we, um, at our best, can bring to the things that we do. And so... I just wanted to talk briefly about five terms that often get conflated, and I, I wanted to pick them apart a little bit in order for us to to think through some of the particularities of how uh, people, and especially those in the Christian tradition, have thought about vocation and how that bears on the human soul and body. And uh, I wanted to start by talking about labor. So labor is kind of subsistent survival. So when my son or daughter cry, are they signed to be fed, rested, protected, or healed? Um, they just want to keep living. Um, and I, I think work is a little deeper than that. Work is the projects that we have transforming the world around us. And my kids do this all the time. They see books on the shelf and they think, you know what, those really belong on the floor. So let's get them down, you know, ASAP. And, um, uh, Transforming our, the environment, you know, is a big part of being human, is making the world into a home. And a lot of times we uh, kind of formalize that into jobs, you know, paid activities, which employees may or may not feel um, that they are thriving in, but nonetheless, they, they put in their hours. And obviously, my kids don't have jobs yet, but someday they certainly will. And uh, if they're lucky, they'll be able to... Um, to turn those purposeful activities um, not just into piecemeal work, but actually into careers, um, a consistent long-term and uh, kind of personality-fitting endeavor um, supported by others, supported socioeconomically, um, where they can bring their passions and skills into the service of others. And that really takes us into the deepest level, um, which has historically been referred to as vocation. It comes from the Latin word um, vocatio. And uh, this was really used by uh, Christians in medieval Christendom to signify a spiritual calling. So uh, oftentimes to life in a religious order or in the priesthood. And then the Protestant Reformation took that. And depending on how you uh, interpret it, they either secularized it or they uh, universally sacralized it and tried to um, ordain a priesthood of all believers and... Uh, give a thumbs up to a host of human occupations and say that God is at work in all of these and invites us to um, work with God. So that is kind of just how I have been schematizing some of the things that I think we'll be talking about. That's great. Um, and I really like the uh, this distinction between the terms. And I think it, uh, as we talk, uh, I think it will become apparent how those distinctions uh, help us sort of explain so, some of the things that we're talking about. Um, so the notion of work and vocation, though, is kind of maddeningly subjective, and it means a variety of things depending on things like class, historical moment, geographic location, etc. 
I'd kind of like to hear from each of you about why you think it's something a thinking person should consider right now. Uh, and we'll start with Allison with this time. Allison? Yeah, I, I really love that, that phrase, the historical moment, because I really think that with people's thoughts about vocation and their living into vocation, that it does seem like we're on the cusp of a big one when it comes to people's understandings of work and place and relationship. It really seems like um, I see so many articles every day of a variety of different places about not just like work-life balance, but about people's frustration with work-life balance or their frustration with um, changing roles and their frustration with um, the advance of technology and how that's changing their work. And I, I just really think that what's underpinning a lot of it is not necessarily just like a search for, oh, what does it mean to do work that I love? But it seems like there's a lot of anger and a lot of resentment, a lot of frustration among people, particularly millennials, about what it means to work and live well. And I think that people are, they're, they're asking the same question that maybe 20, 30 years ago, people were asking in a more optimistic way. Um, and now there's, it seems like there's a lot of anger behind it. And so it, it seems like people are really living into that question, if that makes sense. It does, and I think uh, what you're sort of getting at is this uh, sense of a need for meaning in work amongst younger people, and whereas uh, in maybe past times that meaning was more implied uh, for for people, and it, it, it didn't need such a personal, uh, it wasn't such a personally uh, torturous <laughs> thing to think about, like what my work actually means, and whereas for Kid, those kids today, let's call them. Uh, <laughs> that's not necessarily so obvious, and so I totally, uh, I totally get you there, um, Drew. What do you think? So this topic seems perennially important. Um, the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk, he characterizes human existence as fundamentally joblessness, um, and that's kind of you know an existentialist perspective that we don't have our um, purposeful activity kind of handed to us on a platter, but we have to kind of make jobs for ourselves in a literal and metaphorical sense. But I think this is especially important today uh, because two things seem to have happened in late modernity. Um, on the one hand, the complex spaces between individuals and society, so uh, groups like family, church, labor unions, um, you know, any number of, of communal bonds, they seem to be have uh, either dissolved into collections of individuals or sublated into um, kind of functions of government or, or bureaucracy. But that organic sense of community has to really be fought for. Um, so I think that's happened on the one hand. And then simultaneously, um, individuals have to expect more from their work in terms of being given their identity, be partly because these communities seem to have been dissolved in late modernity. Um, we can't necessarily identify ourselves primarily in, in small clusters of, of those that we kind of uh, live with, but rather we have to seek out abstractions. I think this goes hand in hand with a consumer mentality where you kind of build your identity as a consumer by picking and choosing from an array of, of options on the menu. Um, but I think we do that more and more in terms of work, which 
is ironic because work itself is becoming fragmented. And instead of identifying yourself as a professional identity, you know, as a, um, a butcher or baker or whatever, instead, the increasing tendency, especially among people of my generation, is to hold down multiple part-time jobs. And we don't have a built-in sense of identity as a person, which fits neatly into an economic system. So I think those those two things are happening simultaneously or have happened simultaneously. And, and that's why I think it's, it's especially important today. That is uh, really fascinating. Um, so I'm where I'm living now. So I'm, you know, I do sort of still identify myself via my work. Uh, I am a college professor, right? And I, I, I don't really have hobbies. Uh, this, I hope, is going to become a big hobby of mine, this podcast. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't really – but even that is not particularly distinct from my identity as a, as a college professor. Um, and now I'm living in a place that's uh, in the Allegheny Mountains. Uh, coal is a big industry here still. Um, there are windmills all around us. We're on top of a mountain. It's actually really beautiful where we live. Uh, and that – those windmills are like a political statement almost <laughs> in this area because coal is such a part of the uh, identity of the region. Um, and so I'm, as a college professor, living among and with um, very wonderful people who uh, identify themselves through their work uh, in, in entirely different ways, though, in this kind of manual labor thing. And so um, questions of economy, I think, are not only implicit, uh, with the question of vocation, but when you bring up the idea of late uh, late modernism, uh, I think what I'm drawn to is Frederick Jameson's idea of late capitalism, uh, and and in this sort of more consumer mode of, of uh, economic activity, what does that do to our identities then? Uh, and I think that that's uh, something that's going to be driving a lot of what we talk about here as we go on. Um, and it is also uh, a segue into my own uh, reason for thinking about this subject. As a college professor, uh, I am obviously interested in higher education. And one of the things that concerns me is the way that people conceive of their education is now, uh, has always been, I think, but increasingly so now in terms of the kind of job I can get from whatever major I choose. Uh, and so they think of education, which I, I perceive of uh, as more of a spiritual <laughs> endeavor. Like I'm sort of growing as a, as a person in a metaphysical way. Um, uh, and, but students who come to college increasingly see it as a means to some sort of uh, job at the end of the rainbow here um, that, through which they will identify themselves. And so the things that both of you have talked about right now really, I think, kind of speak to my own concern with this, is, is why is it that someone uh, should become educated? Is it just for the job that they will get at the end of that education, or is there some sort of uh, greater purpose behind that as well? Um, any thoughts about that? You guys are both in education, right? Uh, so this is something that has been on my mind a lot in conversations with Allison over the last um, at least half a year, um, partly because the the educational model and, and the organizational model at our alma mater has really been um, kind of up for debate due to some um, financial and, and other uh, factors. And it's been at the, at the front of my mind and, and being able to think through some of these issues with someone who has been in a number of, of kind of academic climates like you have, Allison, uh, at, 
it's only continued to weigh on me both personally as I'm invested in, in several different educational communities. But um, yeah, I, I just think of, of that moment last year as kind of crystallizing exactly what Danny is talking about. So I, I don't know if you want to weigh in on that at all. Yeah, I do. And then um, I'll add a little bit more to that. So I think that this is a huge, huge problem in higher ed. And I think, you know, there are a lot of complex um, reasons behind it. But what, what's interesting to me specifically about the situation that Drew and I are talking about is that, you know, we come from a tradition of specifically Christian higher education that was really geared toward college as a place for the habitation of the soul and where people came to college not you know they came because they were developing their identities as people and seeing their work as connected to who they were in a very holistic kind of way and i think that christian higher ed is feeling the weight of the economy in a huge way and they are responding to it in really devastating ways so at our alma mater they you know, they fired tenured professors, they let a number of people go, they really kind of adopted this very cutthroat corporate uh, model of understanding not only who they were, but how they had to survive as an institution. And there are lots of reasons for that that I don't fully understand or even know all of the details of, but it is happening at many, many different institutions of higher ed, Christian and non, um, because they are feeling the weight of the economy and they are being kind of pushed to ask this question of, oh, well, what is your end result? How are you producing? And so these questions of how is it that college prepares you to just be a person feel like a privilege and a luxury that people don't necessarily get to ask anymore. And I think that it's, I mean, it's incredibly sad and terrible because Drew and I both um, are... I mean, product is a terrible word <laughs> to use, but like we are, we're products of what our Christian higher ed institution did for us in terms of preparing us to live lives as people. And what's really sad to me too, is somebody who, you know, I've taught in a variety of settings um, and I've seen a lot of different kinds of students and they're all asking that question. They all feel the anxiety and the burden of how is it that what I'm studying isn't just a joke? How is it that my my time spent in this class is going to secure something for me. Not because they're like, oh, I want to make money, but because they feel desperate and they feel unsure about their future and they're, they're unsure about what five years from now will look like. And that really hinges on how they see themselves. And I think that's really driven by, yes, like a lot of economic insecurity, but a lot of existential insecurity as well. People just feel, I think they just feel really uncertain about who they are and what the world looks like. And so, you know, uh, Danny, I hear your, your frustration about like, oh, school is this place where you're formed as a person and this is the ultimate goal of education. And it is, but students are also bringing in this anxiety with them, not because they think like, oh, school is just going to give me a job, but because like they are also asking me these questions about how will my work be something that secures me as a person? And there, there's anxiety in that. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily demand and expectation in a self-righteous kind of way. I think it's, it, I think students are very, very anxious, if that makes sense. Um, it does. But uh, also, um, 
it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Allison, about uh, anger. There's sort of like a, an anger among younger people that kind of feeds into this topic, which is one of the reasons it's an important thing to think about um, as you know, thinking people, which is, I hope our audience is, and I assume they are. Um, but I also feel like this is why, if there is any role for the humanities to still play in higher education, it has to be linked to part of this. I mean, we have to be some sort of, uh, I mean, I, I'm an English professor, so I'm like directly in the center of the humanities. Uh, well, I guess maybe Drew is probably more in the center with philosophy. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but we're all sort of in that world, right? Um, and, uh, but uh, if we have any role to play at all, then it is to kind of maintain that awareness of what's happening to them in the midst of their education. Uh, one of the things I try to do, I'm very sort of influenced by Gerald Graff's uh, Beyond the Culture Wars thing about teaching the conflicts. Uh, he's, this is something about multiculturalism in the 90s, but I think it applies to this as well. Um, like, let them know about the stakes. Like, what is what are people debating about with your education? Like, what is at stake here? And make that actually part of the curriculum. And in that way, it, it, it perhaps salvages some of the kind of, uh, I don't know, spirit building um, that we all sort of idealize about higher education. Uh, do you guys do anything similar in your sort of teaching? Um, I find myself slipping into this. Um, so the last year I've been teaching at both um, a, a Christian liberal arts school and a community college, and I've enjoyed both experiences um, but I've noticed that I, I definitely, uh, especially after starting uh, at the community college, I slip into the the mode of trying to interest students in academics from primarily an economic vantage point. And the, the place that I tend to start is from saying, okay, this is what you care about. And the assumption I make is you care about your jobs. You're here you know, the reason you got out of bed in the morning and showed up to class, and, and we touch on these questions of, of human meaning and uh, purpose and stuff, but I, I always come back to that assumption that this is just a means to an end, and I hate myself for that, um, but it's it's my go-to um, move to get students to understand philosophy at kind of a, a concrete level, and I don't know what to do about that, uh, right. because I think, it, I think it's important to recognize that... Uh, yeah, a lot of people are in college now who would not have had access to college half a century ago, um, and myself included in all probability. Um, right. I mean, on, on the one side of my family, my grandpa was a college yes. professor. On the other side, um, my grandpa worked at the local co-op and was very blue-collar. Um, and so it, it was very much a toss-up whether I would have ended up in, you know, a, a college environment, you know, half a century ago. But all that being said... Uh, I think the expectation from people's families and, and local communities is that college is a place to prepare for economic security. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, but I do think that it begs, well, it, it raises the question, um, what do we mean by college? Do we mean a place of, of, um, of training for skills or do we mean a place set aside for the discovery and production of knowledge um, I'm just kind of rambling at this point. Allison, can you save me? No, you know, I think I think that's really interesting. So the first thing I think of, Drew, when he's putting out all that is my dad. Um, my dad lives in, um, like, the northwest side of Chicago. He has been a bartender my entire life. 
he has like one semester of college under his belt. But my grandfather had his PhD in education. And a large part of my dad's refusing to go to school was in response to like, oh, my grandfather or my dad wants me to do this. He's very controlling. I'm going to do what I want. At the same time, my dad is somebody who loves learning. He loves it. He reads all the time. He brings up, he like strikes up conversations with people in the warehouse where he works all the time. Um, he has always seen like me going to school and my younger sister going to school is like you are going there to learn and engage with ideas. And it's interesting because he has a very like working class-ish background, but at the same time has always seen schooling as like this kind of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a heaven for him. It's like, oh, this is where you can go to like engage in an idea. And I think that he always really longed that in his own life and has like, tried to try to seek that in his own ways but I think there's that feeling too like this like oh college is kind of like this lofty place where some people get to go and if I can work hard enough to send my kids there so that they can do that then something's been met for me and, and I think that my dad certainly feels like that and so I don't necessarily think it's always I mean there is the economic necessity of it that's very important and it's, I think that you do a good job of valuing that for your students coming in because they, they need to be valued for that. They need to have that part of their experience recognized so that they know they have a place at the table in your classroom. But I think there's also this edge of like, oh, college and learning and these discussions about, you know, ideas in the classroom. Like that's something that I want for other people that I love, or at least like that's my experience, like with my, my father. And so... Um, I think that that's also there and that shows that like learning and talking about vocation are things that we um, see as kind of a privileged thing and whether it's like privilege like oh some people get to do it and some people don't or like oh I want this for my family but I'm going to work really hard in this this factory so that I can pay for them to go to school it, it seems like talking about these ideas is kind of a privilege if that makes sense it does uh, to me. I have Sorry, to say, that was kind of no, no, no. <laughs> um, I have to say, like, so where I'm at, one of the things that I'm most excited about um, coming to Mount Aloysius, right, uh, this new job for me, is that most of our students are first generation college students. And it's to me, there yeah. seems to be like that idea, not just that they need a job, but there is something about. Um, uh, there's some sort of heritage thing going on here where the, the older generation wants something better for the younger generation and they work towards that. They work, they're working towards a future they won't get to experience and there's something really beautiful about that to me um, and I'm really um, excited about getting to know these kids in that way because that's the background I come from as, as well and uh, um, uh, I know like for example a lot of uh, the people who work on the staff here seem to seek these jobs so that their, stu their, their, their children can come to college someday. I mean, this is a way to make that happen for them. And, uh, and it's just a, um, it speaks very strongly to what you're talking about there, um, Allison. Um, Drew, do you have anything else to add to that? This is a great topic. Um, I would like to come back to some of these things, I think, in, in later 
uh, sections. Okay, not a problem. And actually, um, what Allison's talking about with her father and his um, uh, ideals about education and learning and thinking um, kind of speaks to what I'm going to talk about in the next section. So maybe I'll start off <laughs> with my own little uh, uh, take on this uh, instead of pitch it to, to you guys first. Um, one of the things that we want to do at Sectarian Review is to think about how the human imagination intervenes in our material conditions. Uh, so uh, we want to talk about is there a, pr a particular work of art, a literature, piece of literature, film, fine art, whatever, that illuminates how we wrestle with the notion of vocation or calling. Um, and the, the work of art that I was going to talk about is a, is a, uh, a novel called da The Rise of David Levinsky. Um, and it's written by uh, Abraham Kahan, who's, uh, who's instrumental. Uh, he's a Jewish immigrant, and he's sort of instrumental in the Jewish Daily Forward and all these sorts of uh, institutions of, of immigrant life and, uh, for the Jew Jewish Americans. Um, and what this is, it's an immigrant narrative. Um, and David Levinsky is a, a person who, in the old country, um, loved yeshiva. He was in the yeshiva, and that was his life and his calling. Uh, and, and there was some spiritual thing that drove him as a human being, as, as his identity. And when he comes to America, um, he sees City College, which later on becomes this place where children of Jewish immigrants go to. I mean, City College of New York, CCNY, the joke was that it stood for Circumcised Citizens of New York. There were so many Jewish people that went there. Um, but uh, they, uh, uh, he sees this place and he thinks of it as a temple, right? Uh, and, and he idealizes education. And so he tries to go to college and he reads Dickens in the way that he reads, uh, he would read scripture before. And there was this real like passion there for him, but he could not make a living in America. So he goes on to become a, a businessman and an extremely successful businessman. And yet at the end of this novel, he uh, thinks of himself as an utter failure because he had to give up the life of the mind in order to pursue material success. And I think that that novel still speaks to me. I'm teaching a class this semester on the Jewish American novel. And I didn't include this because it's kind of a slog, I have to say. I love this novel, but a lot of students find there's just too many things. Too, it goes on too long. But, uh, uh, but I think it, in terms of getting at what we're talking about today, it, it's, it's wonderful. Um, because it illustrates this kind of competition between the material world and the sort of more metaphysical uh, pursuits of the life of the mind. Um, and, and intellectual work and kind of monetary work for which you get paid seem to have no kind of correlation here. Um, and this is a problem that we obviously have just been talking about with the role of the humanities uh, in um, the modern university here. And, and it's something that people have always wrestled with. Uh, the, the kind of the is it just a luxury to be able to think about things deeply uh, and and so uh, that's a book for me that that really kind of draws on what Allison was just talking about um, drew go ahead sorry I just wanted to ask you uh, about your experience um, it, have you noticed that the the stereotype of kind of the the academic with his or her head in the clouds does that ring true for you because uh, I've, I've noticed that uh, on the one hand the, those signs and symbols seem to accrue to university life but at least in the humanities um, at least in in my neck of the woods as they say 
um, in the last several decades, there seems to have been such a practical turn um, towards the, the lived experiences of different communities, towards the, the material economic conditions, towards the um, kind of political implications of texts and um, bodies of knowledge. Um, to me, it seems it, it, it doesn't ring true to me that the university in 2015 is a place where academics can still live above kind of the, the lives of those around them. Instead, it seems that uh, a lot of that critical scrutiny has been turned on the, the very lived experiences of people from the ground up, um, for better or worse. I think that a lot of good has come of that. And um, in some ways, I, I wonder if we've lost some of the um, the benefits that can come from that more monastic almost understanding. So I was just wondering about your experience. Do the humanities feel um, ethereal? Um so my experience, so I went to Case Western Reserve uh, for graduate school, and I felt like that was a pretty, I mean, I felt like everybody was pretty in touch with quote-unquote reality, um, and, and I never felt like what the people that I knew there um, were this sort of ethereal being that was just completely out of touch with the world, right? Um, and in all the jobs that I've had, the conferences that I've gone to, I, of course, have met people that seem like out of touch and, and, and enclaved in, in some ways or another. But I don't think that it I, I agree with you. I think that that's a stereotype. Uh, it's a cultural stereotype at this point. And, and I think that it's unfair for one thing. But I, I also wonder how the oh, the the way that the professionalization of the humanities. Uh, I think in, in order to justify ourselves, we've adopted the sort of professional activity of, say, science and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and so when we write journal articles, uh, it's very esoteric and it's very particular and it's for a small audience. And so I feel like in our efforts to justify our, our professional life, I think that has led to this cultural perception in some ways because we've ab abandoned the public humanities um, to too large a degree. Now, this is a particular motivation of mine for this podcast is to actually participate in some sort of public humanities and, and to talk about, uh, like I said in the promo, talk with other human beings as if they are other human beings, right? And, and uh, um, But I think that if that cultural stereotype has a, has a cause, I think a lot of it, in, in the contemporary world uh, has to do with the, the overt professionalization of, 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 our, of our intellectual work here. Um, but that's just sort of my own uh, opinion on it. Allison, what do you think about this? Oh, I, I see that. I see that a lot. It, it's hard for me a little bit because I'm a writer and a lot of what I do has to kind of be you know, there's a lot of self-promotion that I have to do, um, which comes with its own kind of uh, identity baggage. But at the same time, I've always had to understand that, like, what I do as a writer comes alongside whatever other work that I'm doing. And what validates that work for me is not just, like, my sense of, oh, I, pu I published this and that makes me great, but, like, the, the goodness of the work itself. And it... I do see among, like, my friends, my peers, this kind of um, 
again, this anxiety about like, oh, if I can get this other blog post out, if I can um, review somebody's book, if I can, you know, tag so-and-so in this status, that will show my legitimacy as a thinking writer. Um, because so much of the writing is done really slowly and it's done alongside doing the dishes and paying your bills and trying to, um, you know, keep down any kind of job so that you can do the work of writing. I'm lucky that, like, my other work is teaching, so that way, like, I, you know, it does kind of come with this other boost to my identity and my understanding of my vocation. Um, there, there's a title to that, so my own anxiety gets kind of answered. But at the same time, because I'm a writer, so much of that, like is a complicated thing and there there is an over professionalization of it but there's also sometimes kind of this like degradation of it too like oh like i i've been working on this book for years and years um and it's it's so the work of it is so slow and i just have to really pay attention to it and understand who i am as a writer and there there comes this kind of like weird identity issue with that like I, like I know people who um, have really struggled with their lack of publication or with like their unhappiness with their professional life and so they really kind of take on the the angst of being a writer as like their profession if that makes sense and so they're constantly posting things and talking about like if only I could do this, then I would actually, like, you know, understand and come to the pinnacle of my calling. And that that kind of whining <laughs> and, like, complaining for them, like, becomes, like, their vocation. And that, that to me, is frustrating um, because I, I'm like, well, just do it, right? Like, just, just find a way to do your work. Find a way in the midst of whatever you're doing to, to get it done. Um, but... In teaching, I do think there is a lot of that over-professionalism that goes on, that trying to justify your work to not only yourself, but to the institution of higher ed, which is so over-increasingly being run as a cutthroat corporation. And I think that a lot of that pressure comes from just the way that higher ed institutions are changing. Yeah, and I think we're still trying to solve David Levinsky's problem uh, in a lot of ways, and, and it hasn't worked very well. Um, but uh, Drew, uh, do you have a, a, a work of art uh, or the, of some sort that you want to talk about? Yeah. So as you know, a philosopher sandwiched between two uh, kind of literary theorists or English majors, um, yeah, I, I think I feel qualified to examine you know the greatest book in our tradition, the Bible. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, but there, there's a dynamic that I want to pick up on in Scripture that I've noticed in movies primarily, but I just wanted to use it to highlight a distinction I've noticed among um, how characters are treated in different plots. Um, and in some plots, the main character seems to act primarily in his or her career role. And in other plots, the main character uh, acts primarily outside or against that role, um, the career role. And I think it's interesting which of those uh, is emphasized in a given plot. So I just wanted to um, draw attention to a few stories in the old, uh, the Hebrew scriptures and a few stories in the Christian New Testament. Um, so the, the story of Joseph 
finds him acting primarily in his capacity as an official in Egypt. Now, his story starts earlier than that, but it's kind of this coming-of-age story, uh, being sold into slavery and then rising through the ranks. Um, but ultimately, his the, the, the climax of his story is um, acting you know, wisely as an official in this civilization. Um, the story of Samuel finds him acting primarily in his u- very unique capacity as a combination prophet- priest and judge um and in all of the episodes involving samuel um at least after his his initial call which i'll talk about later um it finds him executing the duties of that career role um likewise david acts primarily uh, as a warrior and a king. Uh, his story finds um him growing into those roles and then, you know, failing at them in various ways. But uh, he is primarily King David. That's his identity. Um, and Esther as well is known primarily as, as Queen Esther. And her significance in the biblical narrative arc is um, the role that she plays pleading for her people to King Xerxes, um, which she can only do in her capacity as queen. Um, so I wanted to contrast that with plots in which the main character kind of acts against their given career uh, identity. So starting with Jesus, um, who leaves his job as a carpenter or a tradesman of some sort um, to act primarily as Messiah. That becomes his occupation for the last three years of his earthly life. Um, similarly, Peter leaves his job as a fisherman to act primarily in the role as in uh, a disciple and then an apostle, kind of spreading the, the gospel. Paul leaves his job as a Pharisee, you know, a very um, institutionalized role in Hebrew culture at the time, to act primarily as a missionary and apostle. Uh, but then he has the, the added career role as a tent maker. And so there's that whole kind of bivocational um flair to what's going on there and finally Lydia um, on the one hand her role is a craftswoman and merchant of um, kind of purple uh, linens and silks but her significance in the New Testament is that she acts primarily as the matron of a safe house for apostles and church members Um, and so that's kind of outside of her role it's enabled by her work but it's not a function of it so those were just uh, some interesting distinctions that I've noticed in the Bible and elsewhere. Very interesting. Um, and that is, uh, it, I guess it, for me, it, it emphasizes the, comp- the inherently complicatedness of negotiating a professional identity and, and, and with your sort of moral life. And there is no sort of mechanical way to approach this question. It's all entirely situational, like what the right thing to do is. Uh, with in that negotiation, I think that that's that's a terrific. As a, a literary scholar, Drew, I applaud you. Uh, as a philosopher, you've you've done a good job there. So, <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Um, um, uh, um There there are a few that come to mind, um, but one that I really want to talk about is one that I actually just encountered this past week. Um, so my husband and I live in you know we live outside of Boston, and we finally got to go to the Museum of Fine Art in Boston, which is just a very very large. Um, art museum and in this museum there is um, a gallery 
like like a, a photography gallery with work that is currently dedicated to um, Gordon Park or Gordon Parks. I, I might have his name wrong, but he was an African American photographer during the 1950s, and he was um, he he was hired by Time Magazine to take pictures of uh, his of segregation and integration, and because you know during the 50s, this is when this was you know coming to a close in terms of policy um, in, you know, segregation of schools and of um, living spaces for black and white people. And he went back to his hometown and got in touch with all of the, the kids that he went to school with in like this segregated school. And, and, you know, now they're like, you know, 20, 30 years older and he tracked with them where each of them were. And so he went back to his hometown in Kansas, he went to Chicago, he went to Detroit, he went to these places of migration for African Americans during the middle of the 20th century. And it was just, it was fascinating and heartbreaking because what I saw in these photos was so much missed vocation and so much, um, so much of this question of how, how are economic and social um, barriers. I mean, that's not really the word I'm looking for, but it's the word that's coming. How these things impede us from truly living a life. And, you know, there's this photo that especially stood out to me of this family, um, this African-American family living in this very suburban house and um, sitting in their, their front yard with their son. And um, the only thing that this photographer was able to kind of get out of this family was that not a whole lot had happened to them. They didn't have anything really to say about like what, you know, like I think the husband worked at like, like a store or something. Um, but because of the fact that he was African-American, he couldn't move up in his work. Like he would always be the help. And they just looked so sad. They looked so sad and um, just stuck. And that was just kind of the caption for all these different pictures. Like, here's here's a man who knows everything about this railroad station and should be an engineer for this train. But because he's African-American, and this is like 1952 in Kansas, he's always going to be the person who pulls down somebody's bags off the train. And it was just so sad and interesting to me to see how these limitations and these injustices really blinded, not blind is the wrong word, but like how they blunted these people's abilities to live fully into the gifts and the desires that they had just in their own work. And it was just a really powerful example to me of like, you know, what it means to have that question thwarted for you in ways that you can't necessarily supersede on your own. And it was just, it was just really, really powerful to see that. That's great. Um, and that really does the, uh, illustrate, I think the redemptive quality that art can have, like it takes this tragedy and, and, and makes it makes a sort of heartbreaking beauty out of it so that, we can redeem that tragedy in some way and, and, and get and get past it and do better in the future with that kind of uh, new perspective that those artworks gave. Um, and I, I am familiar with Gordon Parks and that is, that is, you're entirely right. That that's terrific. Um, excellent. Um, right. And, and the photography is beautiful. Yeah. The photos are just so well done and um, just very illuminating. Yeah. I mean, these are, it was just really, really neat. Yeah. 
Well, one thing that characterized uh, Partisan Review, which is our sort of patron saint publication, uh, was a dedication to ideas that led to some good old bickering. Uh, I think that it's safe to say that the concept that we're talking about vocation is one that's loaded with potential controversy. For example, is simply having the ability to conceive of your paycheck providing job as a calling or vocation just a sign of class privilege, uh, as we've talked about a bit here already. Um, what are some blind spots or points of controversy that you can identify about this subject? And we'll start with Allison this time. Well, I, d I definitely think like these photos that I just referenced, like that really opens up the conversation. It, it, or at least like for us it opens up the conversation with like you know it, it's very easy i think for white middle class people particularly in christian contexts like oh what am i supposed to do with my life what am i being called to do and they have a real crisis about it because they are really trying to figure out like what am i supposed to do with my life and they have this question but they're not burdened by these questions of like wow you know um, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, which is 99% African American, there's one police officer. And that means that people are dying at huge rates. And that means that I'm lucky to just get out of my neighborhood and go work at a Dunkin' Donuts somewhere, you know. And so I, I really think that there is a lack of understanding among, among people in our group, among white Christian, spiritually minded, thinking people about, uh, there's just like a lack of resources and understanding connection with people outside of our group about what it means to understand vocation. And I, it, what's interesting is that I asked this question on my Facebook page um, a few weeks ago, like, oh, what are some recommendations that you have? For people who are just like not in this, this spectrum and I got some pushback from people like I had family members message me and say like you know you asking that question makes me feel like you're not interested in my perspective as a white male person um, I did not get any recommendations that, or like I got like maybe one recommendation of somebody that wasn't um, like a super evangelical white person um, and sorry, that's a term sounds kind of bad, but it's just, it, it, like people were not able to say like, oh, here, here's an African person <laughs> writing about vocation. Here, here's a you know a Latino person writing about vocation. Like there, there's just like, I have no idea how to get into that conversation. And my guess is because it looks different. It looks different and understand purpose as a person who is not in a position of power or who's not in a demographic of power. And I, I don't know how to get into, or how to step outside of my own privilege and power as just a white person who has gone through higher education and has a degree. I, I don't know how to get into that conversation for other people. And that is a weakness. And, and I think that we're missing out on a lot of nuance and understanding of what it means to ask about vocation because we don't have access to that or at least like I don't and I don't know how to ask it yeah I do think two things one you've invented a great cartoon character super evangelical white person I think would be uh, a great a great cartoon <laughs> character for somebody to take up down the road but uh, but two uh, <laughs> but two uh, and, and a much more serious note I uh, uh, pardon me I uh, for the last few years have been living in the South in 
strongly evangelical circles. And I, I, people ask me about racism and things a lot um, now that I've come back north. And, and what I've always said was I think it's a much more complicated – I can't just answer yes or no to that question because on an individual basis, I think people were – like as from human to human, people were overwhelmingly kind to people of all uh, races uh, that I saw. Um, but when confronted with these institutional questions of racism and privilege, that's where you get the uh, very angry pushback that you're talking about on Facebook. Um, and, and so it, there is something, and this yes. is another, I think, reason to think about these questions uh, in this podcast. There, there was, for me, uh, a, a distinction between a person's, I wouldn't call people bigoted, but I, I would call them blind to their own uh, uh, positions, uh, and as we all are, and, and I'm sure that many of the things that I have personally said today here, um, I haven't thought deeply enough about uh, based on my own position in the conversation, but um, being able to step away from yourself and think about um, that broader context for why you have the opinions you have is one of the things that I think higher education is for, but also think just living a good life is about. Um, and so I, I think that you're right on there, Allison. Um, Drew, what, what do you have? Yeah, so, um, well, I just wanted to highlight, first of all, that um, that very dynamic that you're both identifying um, played out in the the planning for this episode. Um, and Allison rightly pointed out that my contributions skewed largely towards, you know, those of people like me. Uh, partly because those tend to be the, the people identifying these issues in the language and, and ideas, which are, you know, intelligible to me as such. But, um, yeah, putting out a call for other voices, um, that was not my first thought, you know. But now the, I will say the one direction that I'm trying to – I have been trying to um, kind of keep an ear out for other ways to interpret and schematize this whole notion of vocation is – socioeconomic class disparities and um that's partly uh mm. driven by my own self-interest and selfishness i'm at a point in my life right now where um my family's uh livelihood to use a phrase that i also pick up on later um is very very much um kind of subject to the whims of the <laughs> the economy and uh so i'm feeling that pressure very directly yeah. um so that, that, that's my own kind of selfish, you know, investment in this topic. But I, I would like to think that this is a an issue that I will continue to push into, you know, in my professional work, but also in my the rest of my life. And that's really what we're talking about. Vocation, not as simply the, the crystallization of your career tasks and duties and responsibilities, but as the shape of your entire, you know, purposeful activity in your life. Um, but nonetheless, that, that that's made me aware to at least one dimension. You've pointed out some others, but what I have noticed is that as the economy fragments jobs into um, smaller and smaller, you know, part-time positions, um, again, this is my own experience, but I've read enough to, to think that this is the way that neoliberalism operates. Um, it does something to our souls. And on the one hand, I kind of abhor specialization um, I forget which sci-fi writer it was that said specialization is for insects, but that really resonates <laughs> with me on the one hand. But on the other, the the kind of logical um, progression of the Henry Ford mentality of um, you know dividing labor into as simple 
uh, of tasks as possible to generate the, the most highly efficient means of uh, production. I knew that phrase yeah. was going to come out. <laughs> right. Uh, that it, It's destructive not just to some of the more beautiful things in our life, and, and you guys were touching on that earlier, um, but I think it's it's actually detrimental to human potential and possibilities because work takes work, and it, it takes a lot of effort to become good at something and habituate yourself to the virtues of the, you know, the um, excellent kind of character habits needed to um, inculcate to really do something well. Uh, and our economy is moving in a direction where that's just harder and harder to do. Now, there are certainly downsides and vices to earlier economic models where you are stuck, right? Like Allison was saying before, you are stuck in this position um, as kind of an entry-level employee and, and you can't learn the the tasks or um, you're not given the ability to rise to new heights in your activities. But I think there's an equal and opposite error that we're tending towards now, um, and you can see it in adjunct work. That's where my life has been the last few years and, and will presumably continue to be, um, where we don't find it terribly significant as a society rallying around education to provide um, the means of well-being for people dedicated to the kind of educational or, or the, um, the intellectual health of their students and their colleagues we don't think <laughs> it's important to support people in that and, and we try to get by on as little as possible and we'll pay um, people piecemeal um, you know on a very contingent basis and it just it leads to greater insecurity and greater uncertainty and um, yeah so that's that's something that I become very attuned to both experientially but also um, analytically and I, like I said, I think it gets in the way of actually developing the good habits, you know, the, the good particular habits that can cohere in the larger life of, of an, uh, a whole life. I won't say a balanced life. I think there's a lot of problems of thinking of life as, as balanced as much as I like that imagery. Um, but um, – and, and that's something I'd like to hear more about, um, especially from, from you, Allison – this notion of, of balance, which has historically, I think, at least since the uh, you know the, the feminist moves of the past century, it's, it's been especially significant for women. And I'd be curious to hear more about um, a work-life balance in relation to vocation from you. Me too. Right. Well, I, I can say for me personally, you know, um, so I, you know, I'm a wife and a mom. I have a two year old. Um, I've also, you know, spent the past three years of my marriage trying to understand what that, you know, oh, what is balance? Right. Because that's kind of I think that's kind of the line that's fed, especially to women in America thinking about work and thinking about vocation and careers like how do, it's not like a how do you have it all but how do you survive with it all and um you know I talk about this a lot with other friends of mine who are mothers and who are professional people who you know they just really feel like it's not that there's not so many hours in the days you do all the things that you want to do but there, there's no work 
that in America that sustains your life as a parent to where you can be fully present as a parent, but also not just get so sucked into parenting that like, you know, you don't like shower or change your clothes or like um, live outside of your apartment. Um, and it's, it's difficult. It is difficult. And I really, I also get really frustrated with um, the, these pitches of like, Oh, you know, this is how you handle work-life balance this is how you're able to work and take care of your family because there, there's something there's just something really mechanical about it and um something really frustrating about it I mean I can definitely say like so, so part of my work also is that I work for an online university um I, I work for a non-profit online school and I grade papers for the school I've done it for two years it has kept um it has really supplemented our family's income I started doing it a month after my son was born because we were living in a geographical place where that was the only work I could find and my husband is just out of grad school and was also looking for work and I needed to do it because we needed to pay a bill and or pay our bills and I'm very proud of that work but at the same time it's also like I, I feel sometimes embarrassed about telling people that that's what I do because there it's kind of like I feel like there are like these negative associations with it and so at the same time I don't ever get a break I don't have a day off I, I think that like I don't remember the last time I had like a day where I did not have to work because I'm, you know, because of the fact that I work from home, I, you know, and I have like my own schedule, I set my own hours. Like I, I'm always working. I always have something going on. I always like, even if it's a Sunday, I will have to log into work because that's just the nature of my work. I have to do that. And so there, there's a lot of blurred lines between like, our professional lives and our home lives that can be really burdensome. And I've been grateful that, you know, people have understood that for me. Um, they're like, wow, like you really are working all the time and you don't get a break. And so um, I think I get a lot of breaks from people, which is helpful. But in terms of like the larger issue, that's a huge burden for people to not have clear delineations between like what they do and who they are and I'm not necessarily advocating like oh this is what you do for work and this is like your family life like you know um, I'll talk about this later but my friend Nancy Nordenson wrote this book called Finding Livelihood that is about all of these different vocational struggles and how what we long for is a seamless life we long for a life where what we do and who we are in our relationships and our place in the world are all knitted together in a place that helps us flourish and what's hard for me right now is that I see the, the benefits of me working all the time. And, you know, I do have the opportunity to pursue my writing in a different way. Um, I am very angry about the adjunct situation in the United States. But, you know, I also get to teach like one class as opposed to saying yes to a professorship and being really overly burdened by that work. Um, so there's part of me that appreciates that piecemealness of it a bit for my place right now um it's just all large and huge and it feels very unnavigatable for i think especially for women well um in order to help listeners i think this might be where allison was going um the listeners that i i hope are enjoying this as much as i am uh this has been a great conversation with you guys so far uh but in order to help them follow up on their own i think it might be useful to provide a review or two uh, of some work either academic or creative um, Allison, did you have something in mind there? And then we'll go to Drew. Yeah, 
yeah, so so like I said, my um, Nancy Nordenson is a writer um, and a friend of mine who just published her first, or not her first book, but she just published a book called Finding Livelihood, and it is about all of these questions. Um, Nancy has been published in numerous um, high-end places, um, and at the same time is also a medical writer, and you know she um, she writes documentation for medical procedures and for journals and things like that and she I think what's really interesting about her book is that she really kind of takes to task this I love the Beekner quote everybody loves the Beekner quote about like you know your vocation is where your deep you know your deep hunger and the world's deep needs like meet each other but she really takes it to task because you know she understands that Again, that can be a privileged question for people. And um, this is a direct quote from her book. While Beekner's words offer a starting point for dreams and plans, when the future is in front of you and the choice is yours, but who but a very small minority can find that exact intersection and from that feed a family? And, I mean, I think that's really the question, like, not the question, but part of the question that people are asking about vocation. Um, and she sees vocation and work as very loaded terms because you can find great purposefulness in your work and have the different kinds of things that you do all be recognized and validated and seen as good. But she also notices that work has something called a shadow side. It weighs down on us. And we have, like as Drew was saying before, like it takes a long time to learn how to do something. And that wears on us that wears on our sense of self, that wears on our sense of what we're good at. Um, we're not always in work situations where we're being affirmed in what we do. We all have really like nasty work stories in our backgrounds. Um, and what, what Nancy really does a good job of understanding and of articulating is, you know, she reads through a variety of, of sources about what it means to be a whole person and how the struggle for work in the United States is coupled with this understanding of trying to understand vocation or this quest for vocation. And I just wanted to kind of give another, um, another quote from her, from her book. Um, she refers to livelihood as kind of her, her term, you know, for her vocation and work are words that have become too burdened with these questions. And so for her, she's seeking livelihood. She says, um, it is the way of one's life and the means of sustenance to make that life possible. It is a union between our working self and our private self and how we can just kind of live really fully into the opportunities that our lives provide for us and also the deep gifts that we have without anxiety. It's just, it's a magnificent book. Um, sorry, here's one more quote from her. And I think it just really captures what a lot of people feel. She says, I yearn for the inner equipping of freedom and play time for my soul to lift and expand to all there is, even while on the path of work. I want a place at the table where data meets humanity. I want to sing while collecting my pay. And that's just awesome. And I think that's that nice. that really, like, that that really gets the part of people's questions about vocation, about my own questions of vocation, and about what it means to be slogging along with, like, eight different temporary jobs, and what it means to also be in one position, trying to figure out what it means to 
live fully in that position while also living fully as a spouse or living fully as a citizen or living fully as a neighbor um, and not having those things be so compartmentalized. It, what, what's interesting to me about Nancy's book is that, like, so, so Martin Luther had this image of vocation as, like, a mask, that, like, we all had a, a bunch of different masks that we put on at different times, depending on what role we were fulfilling, and, um, you know, that it really connects to what Drew said earlier about, you, you know, the the universal sacralization of, of work. But what's hard about that at the same time is that, like, there's separation in that, too. Like, oh, I put on this mask to do this, and I put on this mask to be a parent, and I put on this mask to be a theologian. And there, there's still separation there. And I think that that's where people's anxiety comes from, is that they're feeling disparate, and they're feeling, they're, they're feeling the lack of a whole self. And Nancy's work really articulates that struggle in a way that I think is very healing. Very nice. And what's the name of that book again? It's called Finding Livelihood. Okay. Um, we will definitely take a look at that. That's great. Thank you. Um, yeah. Drew, what do you have? Yeah, so um, before I, I get to my book review, I just wanted to give a quick shout-out to my latest nerd crush. <laughs> I just <laughs> encourage people to um, YouTube the name David Graeber. He's an uh, anthropologist really interested in economic issues, and he was really – uh, key in getting the Occupy Wall Street movement um, kind of underway. Um, and he's got just some great lines that have really um, crystallized and articulated things that have been roaming the back of my mind without really you know clear explication. Uh, things like recognizing when we talk when we have debates about the degree to which um, we should introduce new technologies into the workplace. Uh, because it will, you know, upset the the unemployment figures and it'll put people out of jobs. And he says things like, you know, if, if there's ever been a sign that our society is really stupidly organized, um, it's when you're worried about losing work, right? And work in the sense of labor, you know, not necessarily in the sense of vocational um, kind of spiritual purpose. But um, what could possibly be wrong about having the, the dehumanizing aspects of labor taken away from us in order to, to clear us up for more human living. Um, and, of course, it, it, it's structural issues, right? And so the book that I wanted to talk about is by Lee Hardy. And it, I like it because it, it gets at both um, individual and societal um, concerns surrounding vocation. And it's called The Fabric of This World. Inquiries into Calling, Career Choice, and the Design of Human Work. Um, it was put out by Erdman's um, over 20 years ago, but still like really relevant. And he's a philosopher at Kelvin College. So he's coming out of the reform tradition that, um, that I come out of and that, that Allison and I were both kind of trained in as Trinity. Um, and he starts the book by undertaking a global, although kind of Western-centric, history of the various theories and practices of human work. Um, and how they're interlaced with a notion of, of kind of a fuller notion of vocational flourishing. Um, and then he goes on to thematize vocation and work in terms of both freedom and responsibility. So both kind of this individual um, sense of fulfillment, which is important, but oftentimes gets kind of magnified in our self-help culture. You know, it, and it, at Christian colleges, I've noticed it can become this navel-gazing thing about, like, where's my, you know, purpose? Where's my role in the world? 
it's um, instead of thinking about others, you know, and supporting others in their vocations. And so he also emphasizes this notion of social responsibility, which gets back to another thing uh, David Graeber says about um, he's like there's a slew of, of occupations which just shouldn't exist. Um, we, as inheritors of the Protestant work ethic, we tend to think there's something formally virtuous about working uh, and showing up for your job. But the reality is our world would be a lot better off if a large number of people didn't go to work tomorrow because their employment has been structured in uh, such a way as to degrade other human beings, the environment, um, and ultimately God. But anyway, um, so Lee Hardy in this book, he attends not just to the individual aspects of work, but also to structural issues and says, um, okay, it's not really possible to talk about vocation outside of the kind of social constructions that form our working life. And he talks about, you know, it's only in the last century that the the management culture and the bureaucratization and the, the hierarchies, which we take for granted, you know, in several generations, we have come to imagine ourselves as kind of fulfilling these economic nodes in ways that just would have been inconceivable 150 years ago, um, you know, before corporations really ran things, um, by and large. And, and I, what I like about him is he, he is not a an ideological thinker. He's very discerning, and he applauds and affirms kind of vectors of um, humanization in capitalism and socialism or what, whatever, right? He doesn't have an ideological axe to grind. Um, but he, he also calls out um, the dehumanizing and um, degrading aspects of work wherever they show up as well. And so I just, I really love this book and I taught it in a class on um, kind of basic economic anthropology, who are we as, as working um, kind of vocational beings. Um, so I would just really recommend Lee Hardy's The Fabric of This World. Excellent. Thank you for repeating the title. That sounds great. Mm. Um, um, I will definitely follow up on both of these books. I appreciate the, uh, the, the, uh, the heads up to those. Um, what I have is an album. Uh, we opened the show with a, a, a short bit from Jason Isbell's new album, uh, Something More Than Free. Uh, the song was called If It Takes a Lifetime. Um, but I think this album actually fits really well with our uh, topic of vocation in that it's kind of large thematic idea is to conceive the struggle to live a good life as a calling and a vocation. So in many ways, I think it speaks to what both you and Allison, uh, the books that you uh, presented, um, uh, were arguing as well. Um, this, this album is a follow-up to his critically acclaimed uh, album Southeastern of a couple of years ago, which was his sort of post-sobriety album. He uh, was in a great band called Drive-By Truckers, uh, uh, and he is now on his own, but he uh, has had a lot of sort of alcohol and drug issues that uh, he has gotten over, <clears throat> and he's living like a kind of an extraordinary life right now. Um, Southeastern was a very dark album about uh, the time within addiction. Uh, and now this album, uh, he's happily married, he's got a baby on the way, and, and there's a, a much more of a, a sort of a joyousness to it. Um, although it is not uncomplicated, it's not some naive sort of uh, kind of uh, bubble-headed joyousness. Uh, kind of, I think, probably the line that stands out most in the album is from an, a song called 24 Frames. Uh, you thought God was an architect, 
now you know he's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow and and it's sort of embracing this sort of chaos um, that that, that uh post uh that post sobriety um offers him really um and like much of Isbell's work, uh, the struggle of the characters in these songs, is, or the speakers in these songs, is to negotiate the tension between past, present, and future. If you're familiar with Drive-By Truckers, uh, the great song Decoration Day was his, and I teach that song in conjunction with William Faulkner's Barn Burning. It's about uh, sort of a, a child's uh, being a child being born into a destructive family uh, and, and trying to break free from his father's control. And uh, Flying Over Water from Southeastern is very uh, has a line uh, from the sky we look so organized and brave. Uh, walls that make up barricades and graves, uh, Daddy's little empire built by hand and built by slaves. It's like he's very interested in the the, the impact that uh, the past has upon the future, on the present and the future. Uh, and this he wears on his body. If you ever see him performing, as a tattoo on his uh, left forearm. Uh, and it's a line from a Bob Dylan song, uh, Boots of Spanish Lever, Leather, uh, just carry yourself back to me unspoiled from across that ocean, lonesome, o- lonesome ocean. Um, and he sort of is interested in his roots and not forgetting those roots, uh, coming back from the, from the journey to the same place that he came from, but understanding that he's not going to be the same person, right? Um, in the song that I presented at the beginning, If It Takes a Lifetime, uh, I think the song, the, the line from that song that it's kind of funny. There's a bit of a, a, a swear word in it, so pardon me. But uh, uh, I don't keep liquor here. Never cared for wine or beer, and working for the county keeps me pissing clear. Uh, and so he's uh, clearly uh, uh, joyously through with his addictions in this character, right? Um, but in this line, in these lines, here the past, the present, and the future all intersect and the the speaker's redemption is entirely related to his willingness to do the day to, day-to-day drudgery of living working for the county right uh and and it's a really kind of a beautiful song and uh and it's a really beautiful album in that way um and it's uplifting partially because of his real life uh he's got this amazing uh marriage and partnership with the equally amazing artist amanda shires they're expecting a baby right now, and he's very open about this uh, on on Facebook, and and he kind of presents his joy to the public, and uh, and and that really does kind of encapsulate the the past, present, and the future, uh, and and I think that uh, all of that has to do with uh, living life as a kind of vocation, um, and so that's an album. It's getting. I'm not the first person to talk about this album. It's it's getting rave reviews, and he's making the uh, the television talk show circuit performing songs from it take a look at it uh it's excellent this is an excerpt from a chapel sermon that i gave last year at trinity christian college for their chapel series on vocation the paradigmatic biblical story of godly vocation unfolds in the third chapter of the book of samuel when the lord calls the eponymous boy to prophetic ministry a little background The family of Eli of Shiloh have been called by God to be a priestly class, to go up to God's altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in God's presence. Chapter 2, verse 28. But the two sons of Eli have abused their sanctuary offices through a series of sexual and dietary desecrations. Despite some half-hearted rebukes, Eli has failed to restrain his son's evils. After squandering the time and tasks given to him, Eli's vocation as a member of the priestly lineage is recalled by God. 
recalled in both senses of revoked and called again. Eli has been given a second chance in the form of another son, Samuel. This young boy's previously barren mother has given him over to be trained by Eli as a Nazarite in gratitude for his conception and birth. Samuel sleeps in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. Just like Moses, the original recipient of the Ten Commandment tablets inside, Samuel epiphanically hears God's voice, calling him directly by name. According to the passage, quote, The word of the Lord was rare in those days, which should give us pause if we're ever tempted to think that God's Spirit was more fully present to our ancestors in the past than to us today. Part of the reason that, quote, there was no frequent vision of God then was that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Yet this blindness makes the aging priest even more sensitive to God's call when he hears it echoing through Samuel's report. Samuel doesn't recognize God's call as such, but Eli does. However, God only speaks directly to Samuel and not directly to Eli. And what does God speak about? Eli's failure to live into his calling as a father and a priest. Samuel's calling is to inform Eli that the old man has failed in his own calling. But Eli's new role is to enable young Samuel to respond appropriately to his own calling. A perfect circle, yet one which spirals outwards. Eventually, Samuel takes up Eli's supportive role by anointing the kings of Israel, thereby affirming their sovereign callings and prophetically helping them to more clearly hear the voice of God. So who do you identify with in this tale? Are you the youngster brimming with potential? Or are you the chastened old-timer past his prime? For those who grew up uh, hearing this and other Bible stories, we might continue to cast ourselves as children awaiting their father's call. But if we're all Samuel, then who is Eli? Many Christians are thinking through the implications of the end of Christendom, the crumbling of the West's religious social architecture. And as we try to piece together new ways of following Christ through the rubble of secularization, we the church discover more and more shards of our own violent history, more and more fragments of the broken church body of Christ who we have systematically hammered into silent submission. What if now we're being recalled to give our voice to the voiceless? Maybe that call you hear isn't really for you. It's for someone else. Maybe you can be part of a supportive community articulating and affirming the vocational strengths in others. Maybe you are being recalled to echo God's call to another. I propose that we who find ourselves in historically powerful communities should identify more with Eli than with Samuel. We should embrace supporting roles which enable our marginalized sisters and brothers to find their God-given callings and God-given voices alike. Guys, let me thank you both for your good work here. It's been a lot of fun for me to bounce these ideas off of you. I've learned a lot, uh, and I really do hope you're willing to participate in the future. Next month, I'd like to talk about the idea of voice. Uh, The college I teach at, Mount Aloysius, uh, each year has a theme that organizes a speaker series, etc. And this year, that theme is voice. Last year, it was the good life. Uh, And it occurred to me this is not something, not only something that I can incorporate into my classes, but I think it would be a really interesting uh, second episode as well. So if either of you are willing to try this again, please let me know. Uh, And also, I want to make the listeners feel part of the show as well. If you have an idea for a show or wish to participate at some point in yourself, uh, at some point yourself, please let us know at sectarianreview at gmail.com. We also just put up a Facebook page for those of you who do that. Um, And I assume you know how to find it. (laughs) I don't really know how to tell you to do that. Uh, uh, And please also feel free to give us some feedback. Uh, If there's something you'd you'd like to add to our discussion, that's sort of what this is about. Please feel free to tell us about it. And Allison Drew, uh, thanks again so much. And to everybody else, bye for now.